Say the word. Say the word. That was the command given by the Gileadite soldiers to every man who they saw trying to cross the River Jordan. Say the word. This was around the year 1100 B.C., and the Gileadites were at war with a neighboring tribe called the Ephraimites. This war started after the Gileadites had gone to battle against another nearby nation, the nation of Ammon, and Gilead defeated Ammon, and when the Ephraimites heard about it, they were upset that they'd not been able to share in that victory. So the dispute escalated and escalated, and before long the Ephraimite army crossed over the River Jordan from the eastern side where they lived to the western side where the Gileadites lived, and they went to war against Gilead. But the Gileadites were more powerful, and they quickly defeated the men of Ephraim. The Ephraimites ended up breaking rank and fleeing in all directions from the Gileadite soldiers. The Gileadites wanted to catch as many of these fleeing Ephraimites as possible, and they knew that eventually each one of them would have to cross the Jordan again to get back to the eastern side where they lived. So the Gileadite leader stationed soldiers all along the river at any place where there was a bridge or where the river was shallow enough to ford. And every time the Gileadites caught a man trying to cross it, they would say, hey, are you a Gileadite or are you one of the Ephraimites that we're at war with? And if a man admitted to being an Ephraimite, he'd be killed on the spot. So many of them said, no, I'm not an Ephraimite, even if they were, just to avoid being slain. And the problem for the Gileadites was that the Ephraimites looked pretty much the same as they did. They were both Semitic tribes who had descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these were basically brother nations, and they looked like the same people. And that meant that if one of the Ephraimites said, no, I'm not an Ephraimite, I'm one of you, the the Gileadites couldn't really dispute it. But before long, the Gileadites came up with a test a simple way to verify if each man was Ephraimitish or not. These two tribes both spoke an ancient version of Hebrew, and they spoke it very similarly, but there was at least one consonant sound that they pronounced differently from each other. So when the Gileadite soldiers caught a man trying to cross the river, and if the man denied being an Ephraimite, they'd put a sword to his throat and tell him, Say the word. Say the word shibboleth. Shibboleth in ancient Hebrew dialects means ear of grain. So it would have been a very common agricultural term. But the Gileadites pronounced it with a sh sound, like shibboleth. And the Ephraimites pronounced it with a s, sibboleth. The Ephraimites were apparently unable to say sh because of their dialect. And so, as soon as the Gileadites heard a man say it with an S-H, shibboleth, they would say, Carry on, good sir, enjoy your time on the east side of the river. But if one of these would-be river crossers said it the wrong way, sibboleth, then they immediately knew that he was one of the fleeing Ephraimite soldiers, so they would slay him right there by the river. And the Gileadites were able to identify and kill thousands of enemy soldiers by this pronunciation test. That's an interesting bit of history that is recorded in chapter 12 
of the book of Judges in the Bible. And if you look at an English dictionary today, you'll find the word shibboleth. We don't use it to mean ear of grain, the way the ancient Gileadites and Ephraimites did, but because of this biblical history, the word's been imported into the English language to mean basically a linguistic password, or a word that tags you as being within a certain group, or outside of a certain group. Merriam-Webster defines it as a word or a way of speaking which shows that a person belongs to a particular group, or doesn't belong to a certain group. It has a few other related meanings too, but that's the main one. So you could say, for example, Americans from the South sometimes use the term y'all as a shibboleth to identify each other. Another example of a modern shibboleth in English is the pronunciation of the last letter of the alphabet. You can use this to tell if an English speaker is American or not. We Americans pronounce it Z, but pretty much all the other English speakers in Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and so on, they pronounce it Z. And actually during the 1950s and 60s, people would ask young men in Canada to pronounce the letter Z to see if they were truly Canadians or if they were Americans who were hiding in Canada to dodge the military draft that was underway in the U.S. at that time. So Z, or Z, became a really useful shibboleth. I really like the word shibboleth because of its fascinating history, its uh, etymology. It's one of my favorite words, actually. And on today's episode of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM, we will talk about words and language. And we hope that it stirs you to deepen your love for language. This topic's been on my mind since late July, when the host of the Key of David program here on KPCG, Mr. Gerald Flurry, delivered a very powerful message about leadership. The message included seven points on how to build leadership skills, and number three on the list was learn to love and use your own language. Mr. Fleury said, quote, Learn to love and use your own language. We have so much to communicate. We have everything to communicate. You need to really learn your language and love it and keep improving in it all your life. And that is a very practical and valuable bit of advice there. In order to hone our leadership abilities and to improve our interpersonal relationships and even clarify our thoughts, we have to ameliorate our language skills. Ameliorate, by the way, just means improve. I found a good way to remember that one is by saying, Amelia Earhart, the famous aviator, improved or ameliorated the status of women in the field of aviation. Amelia ameliorated. Just a little mnemonic device there that might help you. Learning to use language more powerfully is not just about vocabulary. That's really just one aspect of it, but it is a vital one. Vocabulary is foundational because you can master all the literary devices in the world and study the arts of analogy and antithesis and allegory, but if your storehouse of words is limited, then your dexterity with all these devices will be equally limited. Words are the foundation, and the more of them you know well enough not just to recognize in reading, but to use while speaking and writing, then the more successful all of your communication efforts will be. 
I've got a quote here from the late lexicographer Dr. Wilfred Funk. He said, quote, Words are the tools of thinking. It naturally follows, then, that the more words you have at your command, the clearer and more accurate your thinking will be. Words are your medium of exchange, the coin with which you do business with all those around you. With words, you relate to people, communicate your feelings and thoughts to them, influence them, persuade them. In short, through words you shape your own destiny, for your words are your personality, your vocabulary is you. So we should make words our allies. We should make them our friends and companions. One excellent way to grow your vocabulary and to build it into an expansive and voluminous and variegated collection of words is to learn how to recognize roots. For example, a moment ago I said that we should try to make words our companions. If you take that word companion and you look at the Latin roots that it's made up of, you see cum, which is from the Latin word meaning with, and pan, which comes from the Latin word for bread. So someone who's your companion is someone you eat bread with. That's what the word means. You eat bread with your friend, so they are your companions. And then if you take a gander at words like company and accompaniment, they're also built on those same two Latin roots. And once you know about roots, they become fairly easy to spot. And you can sometimes even figure out the meaning of a big, long, intimidating word just by breaking it down to its roots. I remember once, for example, I had recently learned the word circumlocution. And I asked one of my friends, one of my friends who had a really vast vocabulary, if he knew what it meant. And he said, well, let me think. I've never, you know, I've never looked this word up. I'm not familiar with it. But I know that circum means around. Like if someone circumnavigates the world, they sail around it. And, you know, the circumference of a circle is the distance around the outside of it. So circum is around. And then my friend considered the rest of the word, circumlocution. And he said, okay, the next thing you see is locution. And I recognize that root, loke or locute. I've seen that in words like elocution, which means public speaking, and eloquence, loquacious, ventriloquist, the guy who speaks through his puppet. So locution is speaking. And then he said, okay, so circumlocution then must mean speaking around or roundabout rambling language, using too many words to express thought. And my language-loving friend was exactly right. And I remember just being thunderstruck by the way he had reasoned his way to the correct definition of such a long and kind of obscure word, a word that he had not previously been familiar with, just by parsing it into its roots. This was the experience that made me interested in roots. And I hope I'm not boring you with this look into roots, but I'd like to hit one more before we move on, and that is Luna. Luna is a root meaning moon, and of course you see that in the English word lunar, as in a lunar or moon-based calendar. But you also see it in the word lunatic. We use that word now to describe someone who's acting crazy, but the word lunatic originated from the belief that insanity was caused by changes in the moon. So a lunatic was someone affected by the moon 
or the Luna, and who was acting crazy as a result of those changes in the moon. And now if you would please take a look at one of your fingernails. At the base of it, do you see that little crescent, moon-shaped, lighter-colored segment? That's called the lunula. And it's named that because it's shaped like, kind of like a crescent moon. So people have ten lunulas, and most don't even know about them, or at least most of us don't know that they have such a perfect name. The English language is so rich and descriptive that we have words for almost everything. And we're adding new words to English every year. Back in 2009, the English language crossed the million-word milestone. So there are more words than anyone could ever really learn in a lifetime, but learning to recognize roots will help you immensely. And when we come back, we'll talk about a couple of other words with fascinating stories behind them and some more practical ways to improve your use of your language. This is The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. Today's episode is about words and language. And here's another word story for you. Sometime in the 1750s, a British writer named Horace Walpole was reading through a collection of old Persian fairy tales. And he came across one that was about three princes from Sri Lanka. And as is usually the case with ancient fairy tales about trios of men, the three princes in this story had a lot of adventures. But what was unique about these three was that during the course of those adventures, they would often make amazing discoveries by accident. They would come into all kinds of fortunes by accident. They'd be pursuing a certain goal, but then accidentally accomplish another more meaningful goal. They'd be searching for one thing and accidentally find another more valuable thing. The fairy tale was called The Three Princes of Serendip. Serendip was an ancient Arabic name for Sri Lanka. And so Horace Walpole read this story, and he coined the English word serendipity. Serendipity is an excellent word that just means making happy and desirous discoveries by accident. And you can also use it as an adjective, serendipitous. We got lost on our way to Applebee's, and we ended up discovering a fantastic little Persian restaurant. So if we hadn't gotten lost, we would never have discovered it. Getting lost was serendipitous. So anyway, that's another etymology that I find interesting. And in the year 2000, the people of the United Kingdom voted serendipity as the UK's favorite word. My favorite word, I think, is abstruse, which just means difficult to understand. And I like it just because of the sound of the word, the way it sort of slithers off your tongue and then sloshes around in your ear. Abstruse. A close runner-up for me would be the word abstemiously. It just means done in moderation. But I love this one because it has all of the vowels in alphabetical order. Abstemiously. A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. I believe it's the only word in the English language that does this um, without any repetition of the vowels. One other interesting language story for you is the word bear. Panda bear, sun bear, any kind of bear. The word bear sounds very simple, but here's the fascinating thing. 
we don't know what the word for bear actually is because it's been lost. The modern word bear is just a euphemism that replaced the original lost word. The English word bear comes from the Proto-Indo-European word B-H-E-R, which just meant brown or the brown one. Back in the Middle Ages, the Germanic-speaking peoples were terrified of bears. Bears posed a real threat to the people in their societies, and there was a superstition that if you said the word for bear, then you would summon one and be in danger. So the original word for bear became a taboo. Nobody wanted to say it, and people just used a euphemism instead that meant the brown one. But the taboo is so strong that over the course of who knows how many generations, the original word for bear was forgotten, and only the euphemism lived on. Bear is considered to be the oldest euphemism in English, but of course bear has now become the standard word for this animal, so you don't have to feel awkward saying that word today. I'd like to briefly discuss one other excellent and fairly straightforward way to improve your use of language, and that is vary your sentence length. To demonstrate this, I'll read a passage written by the American author Gary Provost. Here it is. This sentence has five words. Here are five words more. Five-word sentences are fine, but several together become monotonous. Listen to what is happening. The writing is getting boring. The sound of it drones. It's like a stuck record. The ear demands some variety. Now listen. I vary the sentence length and I create music. Music. The writing sings. It has a pleasant rhythm, a lilt, a harmony. I use short sentences. And I use sentences of medium length. And sometimes, when I'm certain the reader is rested, I will engage him with a sentence of considerable length, a sentence that burns with energy and builds with all the impetus of a crescendo. The roll of the drums, the crash of the cymbals, sounds that say, listen to this, it is important. So the lesson there, for Mr. Provost, is to vary the length of your sentences. Use a combination of short, medium, and long ones. With this, you can create a mellifluous sound that serenades the reader's ear. Provost says, don't just write words, write music. And of course, that is excellent advice, not just for writers, but for speakers as well, especially with more formal speaking with prepared remarks. If you challenge yourself to vary the length of your sentences, you'll please the listener's ear and better communicate your message. And really, communicating your message is what it's all about. That should be our main motivation for learning to love and to use our language. So that means that if you are a logophile, logo meaning word and file meaning one who loves So logophile is someone who loves words. And if that describes you, then it's crucial to remember that learning to really love and use your language does not mean running around talking about the serendipitous circumlocutor with misshapen lunula. If you use language to showcase your intellect and to show off your, you know, superior vocabulary, if you use it vainly to speak over people's heads, then you'll fail to accomplish the real purpose of language, communication, getting through to people. 
But I believe that knowing a greater range of words and knowing the rules of language and grammar and devoting time to sharpening your linguistic tools and to fine-tuning your various literary devices, all of that will still help you, even when you opt for utter simplicity, even when you decide to speak in the most straightforward and plain way possible. It's similar in some ways to a composer of music. A composer doesn't have to abide by all the rules and guidelines of music theory. In fact, some of the most beautiful compositional moments occur when the music deviates from those rules. But if the composer knows the music theory rules, then he's much more likely to know how to bend and break them in beautiful and captivating ways than he would be if he were ignorant of them. But back to language. On this topic of the perils of using language to showcase your intellect, I wanted to share a brief story here from the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong. He was the head of the Worldwide Church of God until his death in 1986, and anyone who ever heard Mr. Armstrong speak, or who read his writing, would know that he was a masterful communicator. He communicated in a way that was gripping, stimulating, colorful, and impacting, but that was still plain to understand for almost any English speaker. In his autobiography, Mr. Armstrong explains that his audience-minded approach to language was not something that just naturally happened for him. When he was in his late teenage years, Mr. Armstrong had read about a writer named Albert Hubbard, who claimed to have the largest vocabulary of anyone alive at the time. And the young Mr. Armstrong thought that sounded impressive. So he made it his goal to surpass Mr. Hubbard. Here's what Mr. Armstrong wrote. Ever since I had read Albert Hubbard's boast of possessing the largest vocabulary of any man since Shakespeare, it had been a challenge. I was determined to acquire a greater, to be able to pour out a torrent of big words incomprehensible to any but the highly educated had appealed to my intellectual vanity. End quote. And from there, Mr. Armstrong explains that a few years later, he was employed as a writer for an advertising company, and he learned that good communication is not about trying to impress people or about flaunting your education. It's about conveying thoughts clearly, getting your message across to as many people as possible. And he learned that intellectual vanity is a major obstacle hindering that goal. So he actually made a conscious decision to simplify his vocabulary. He says, quote, My effort then became that of developing ability to use the largest variety of words readily comprehensible by most people when heard or read. Immediately I set out to develop a distinct and effective style. It had to be fast-moving, vigorous, yet simple, interesting, making the message plain and understandable. End quote. Mr. Armstrong's autobiography is rich with practical lessons like that one, and many deep spiritual lessons, too. And even the way the stories in the book are told, and the way it's written, it's a valuable lesson in effective communication. If you don't have a copy of his autobiography, please go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab, and we'll send you a free copy of this excellent book. The Bible also has quite a lot to say about speaking well and effective communication. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Proverbs 16.24 says, 
pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Proverbs 12.18 shows that this can be a two-way street, and that language has the power not just to heal, but also to destroy. It says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. That last one makes me think of something the writer Nathaniel Hawthorne once said along the same lines. Hawthorne said, quote, Words, so innocent and powerless as they are as standing in a dictionary, how potent for good and evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. End quote. So, of course, we must wield the sword of language circumspectly. Circum, we know, means around, and spect comes from a Latin root meaning to look, which we see in numerous words like spectacles, introspection, retrospection. So circumspect means looking around. It means being vigilant, being cautious. We should wield the sword of language circumspectly. One final tip I wanted to mention is that an excellent way to improve your use of language is to be on the lookout for words and phrases that you overuse. Think about this. You're taking a hike to Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, and one of your hiking companions offers you a cookie on the way, and it's good, so you say, this Oreo is awesome. And then as you're hiking along and getting closer, one of your other friends insists that you borrow his phone to listen to some new pop song. The song ends, and you thought it was pretty catchy, so you say, thanks, that was awesome. And then you keep on hiking, and you go a little further and a little further, and the roar of the falls is getting stronger and stronger. It's beginning to literally shake the ground under your feet. And then you burst through the tree line, and there you are, standing on the cusp of the world's largest sheet of falling water. Your eyes widen at the majesty of the scene. 300,000 gallons of water per second battering the earth and you're overwhelmed by the sheer power on display. You feel almost faint, hearing the perpetual crash, feeling the mist on your face, and the trembling planet beneath you, and beholding the stunning splendor. And then you want to say something about this experience, so you say, this is awesome. In that scenario, the word doesn't mean what it should. It doesn't do justice to the majestic sight that you're beholding, and not by any fault of the word awesome. Awesome is the right word for that experience. But since you've overused and actually misused it, it's been weakened, enfeebled. The overuse has stripped the word of its power, so there you are with nothing in your storehouse of words to describe what you're experiencing. In that situation, all you could really do is say, this is really, really, really awesome, which is not a compelling way to speak. So anyway, that's a, it's an easy trap for any of us to fall into. We can begin to feel very comfortable with words like amazing or epic or awesome. And so we start using them too much and it can end up putting us in a bind because if you always describe everything as an 11, even if it's only a three or a four, then what options remain when you encounter an actual 11 kind of experience? One practical thing you might consider is challenging yourself to become more comfortable using some new words to convey your excitement or appreciation in a given situation. Think about words like remarkable, stellar, impressive, compelling, enriching, iconic, transcendent, or delectable if you're talking about food. 
The list goes on and on. And each of these means something precise. And most native English speakers will easily recognize all of them. It may not feel natural the first few times you use these words, but before long, with a few uses, you will come to feel comfortable with them. And they'll help you to avoid that trap of overusing certain words and terms. They'll help you to avoid overspending. Spending an $11 word when you only owe a 2 or $3 word for the situation. Getting comfortable with more of these kinds of words will help you to be more precise. And precision is so important in effective communication. As the great American writer Mark Twain said about the importance of choosing precisely the right word, he said, quote, The difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. I would like to thank Mr. Unta Luoda for providing the score for the show this week. And remember to visit thetrumpet.com to order a copy of the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong. It's entirely free, no shipping charges or follow-up of any kind, and it's deeply impacting. I'll leave you today with the words once again from Mr. Gerald Fleury's July 22nd message. Learn to love and use your own language. We have so much to communicate. We have everything to communicate. You need to really learn your language and love it and keep improving in it all your life. Mm